Chapter 6. Gastroenterology. Topic 5. Large Intestine. Welcome to today's medical podcast where we delve into a common clinical presentation that you will undoubtedly encounter in your practice, diarrhea. Let's begin with the causes of diarrhea, which are multifaceted and can broadly be categorized into several key areas. Firstly, infectious causes, which include bacteria like Salmonella, Shigella, and E. coli, viruses such as norovirus and rotavirus, and parasites like Giardia lamblia. Secondly, medication-induced diarrhea, with antibiotics being a prime example, as they disrupt the gut flora leading to diarrhea. Thirdly, we have inflammatory causes, notable among which are ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, chronic conditions characterized by inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. Fourth, malabsorption issues can lead to diarrhea. Conditions such as chronic pancreatitis impair digestion and absorption of nutrients. Lactose intolerance results from a deficiency of lactase enzyme. Celiac disease is a reaction to gluten. And Whipple's disease, a less common etiology, affects the small intestine's ability to absorb nutrients. Finally, we must not overlook psychiatric causes like irritable bowel syndrome, where there's a significant interplay between the gut and psychological factors. Moving on to the signs and symptoms associated with diarrhea, increased frequency and decreased consistency of bowel movements are hallmark features. The stool may be watery, bloody, or have a floating appearance due to steatorrhea. Patients may present with signs of dehydration, evident through dry mucous membranes or decreased skin turgor. In chronic cases, anemia and hemoconcentration can occur due to nutrient malabsorption and fluid loss, respectively. Diagnosing diarrhea involves a clinical evaluation that assesses the severity, duration, and associated symptoms to determine the potential etiology. Laboratory studies, particularly looking at electrolytes, can reveal hypokalemia and a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, which are indicative of electrolyte derangements due to excessive loss of fluids and electrolytes. Management strategies for diarrhea primarily involve fluid resuscitation to address dehydration. This can be achieved with oral rehydration solutions in mild cases or intravenous fluids in more severe cases. It is paramount to treat the underlying etiology of diarrhea, whether that entails discontinuing an offending medication, treating an infection with the appropriate antimicrobials, or managing inflammatory or malabsorption conditions with targeted therapies. In this next section, we will unpack the various etiologies of infectious diarrhea, their unique associations, and the respective management strategies. Starting with Bacillus cereus, a classic association is with fried rice, often resulting from rice that has been cooked and then improperly stored. Patients typically present with an acute onset of symptoms, particularly vomiting. The mainstay of management here is supportive care, as the illness is usually self-limited. Staphylococcus aureus is frequently linked to foods high in mayonnaise, such as potato salad, where it arises from improper food handling. Similar to Bacillus cereus, onset is acute, and vomiting is a prominent feature. Again, management is primarily supportive, focusing on hydration and symptom relief. Shigella, often associated with undercooked beef, presents a more severe risk due to potential complications, such as hemolytic uremic syndrome. Close clinical monitoring and supportive care are essential, and antibiotics may be warranted in severe cases. In the case of Giardia, we think of campers and hikers who consume contaminated water. Metronidazole is the treatment of choice to eradicate the protozoan. Clostridioids difficile, 
A significant concern with recent antibiotic use can lead to pseudomembranous colitis. Management includes discontinuation of the offending antibiotic and initiation of oral vancomycin or phydaxomycin with metronidazole as an alternative, clostridium botulinum associated with unpasteurized honey in infants and home canned foods in adults leads to flaccid paralysis. The administration of antitoxin is crucial for management. Vibrio vulnificus, often contracted from eating raw oysters or exposure to seashells, can cause severe infections, particularly in individuals with liver disease or hemochromatosis due to the organism's affinity for iron. Sepsis and hemorrhagic bully are severe associations. Management includes a combination of tetracycline and a third-generation cephalosporin. For Campylobacter, associated with undercooked chicken or exposure to turtles, the key complication is Guillain-Barre syndrome. While supportive care is often sufficient, fluoroquinolones may be necessary in severe cases or for immunocompromised patients. Salmonella is typically associated with raw eggs and poultry. Beyond supportive care, Attention must be paid to potential gallbladder colonization, particularly in chronic carriers. Cryptosporidium is especially concerning in the immunocompromised, such as those with AIDS and CD four counts below 100, causing chronic watery diarrhea. Nidazoxanide and paramomycin are effective treatments. Entamoeba histolytica, linked to travel in tropical regions, causes bloody diarrhea and may lead to liver abscesses. The treatment regimen includes metronidazole, followed by paramomycin to eliminate luminal cysts. Trichinella, associated with undercooked pork, can cause myalgias, periorbital edema, and eosinophilia. Treatment involves albendazole or mebendazole. Tania solium, also from undercooked pork, can lead to cystocercosis, and in the case of neurocystocercosis, treatment with praziquantel, albendazole, plus steroids is indicated. Lastly, it's important to remember other iron-loving organisms, including Yersinia, Listeria, and additional strains of Vibrio, which have unique clinical presentations and management strategies. Next, we'll discuss angiodysplasia. Let's start by discussing the pathophysiology of angiodysplasia. It's crucial to understand that these are not true vascular malformations, but rather degenerative lesions that occur due to chronic, intermittent obstruction of submucosal veins. This obstruction leads to dilation of the venules and capillaries, resulting in the formation of fragile, tortuous vessels that are prone to bleeding. Clinically, angiodysplasia presents with a range of signs and symptoms. These include diarrhea melina, which is characterized by black, tarry stools, indicating upper GI bleeding, and anemia. Hematochesia may also be observed in severe cases. The symptomatology largely depends on the severity and location of the lesions. There are several associations of note in angiodysplasia. Firstly, it has been linked to aortic stenosis. This association is thought to be due to the alteration in blood flow dynamics. Additionally, deficiencies in von Willebrand factor, a key component in the blood clotting process, have been observed. This deficiency can exacerbate bleeding. Finally, there's a notable association with advanced renal disease, which can further complicate the condition. Moving on to diagnostics, colonoscopy, is the gold standard for identifying angiodysplasia. Most commonly, bleeding is found to originate from the right colon. However, it's important to note that in cases where colonoscopy is not feasible or fails to identify the source of bleeding, angiography can be employed as an alternative diagnostic tool. 
The management of angiodysplasia primarily revolves around endoscopic interventions. Coagulation of the lesion using techniques like argon plasma coagulation is a common approach. This method involves applying a non-contact thermal energy source to the lesion, effectively coagulating the bleeding vessels. In scenarios where there are persistent life-threatening bleeds, a more aggressive approach such as hemicolectomy may be necessary. Moving on to discuss diverticulosis. Diverticulosis is defined as the presence of colonic outpouchings, or diverticula, which are believed to occur secondary to chronic constipation and dietary factors. A typical Western diet, characterized by high protein and low fiber, plays a significant role in its pathogenesis. The lack of fiber leads to increased colonic transit time and intraluminal pressure, promoting the formation of these outpouchings. Clinically, the most common presentation of diverticulosis is, in fact, an absence of symptoms. Most individuals with diverticulosis remain asymptomatic. However, chronic constipation can be a feature, and painless hematochesia is also noted. This bleeding is due to weakness in the colonic wall at the site of the diverticula, which compromises the integrity of the associated arterial supply. When it comes to diagnostics, colonoscopy is often the primary modality, with diverticulosis frequently being an incidental finding during examinations conducted for other reasons. Additionally, computed tomography, CT of the abdomen and pelvis, can provide valuable insights, particularly in complicated cases. Barium enema, once a mainstay of diagnostic imaging, is less commonly used but can still be relevant in certain clinical scenarios. Management of diverticulosis-associated bleeding is often conservative, as most cases resolve spontaneously without the need for aggressive intervention. However, in refractory cases, where bleeding does not resolve or recurs frequently, endoscopic or surgical interventions may be necessary. Prevention of complications, particularly diverticulitis, involves dietary modifications, primarily the adoption of a high-fiber diet to reduce constipation and colonic pressure. Speaking of complications, diverticulitis, the inflammation of these diverticula, is a significant concern. It represents a progression of the disease and is associated with a range of complications including abscess formation, perforation, and fistulae. Further elaborating on diverticulitis, the pathophysiology of diverticulitis involves the obstruction of a diverticulum often due to impaction with fecal matter or, less commonly, a cancerous growth. This obstruction leads to inflammation and can result in infection. The clinical manifestations of diverticulitis are varied and depend on the severity and extent of the inflammation. Patients with diverticulitis often present with left lower quadrant abdominal pain, which is typically the hallmark of the condition. This pain is usually sudden in onset and can range from mild to severe. Systemic signs of infection such as fevers and chills, are also common. Nausea and vomiting can occur, and gastrointestinal symptoms like constipation or diarrhea are frequently reported. Bladder irritation due to the inflamed adjacent sigmoid colon can lead to symptoms such as increased urinary urgency and dysuria. In some cases, a palpable mass may be felt in the abdomen, indicating a localized inflammatory process or abscess formation. The diagnosis of diverticulitis is primarily based on imaging studies. The most commonly used diagnostic tool is a computed tomography, CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. This scan can show bowel wall thickening and pericolic fluid collections, indicative of inflammation and other complications. Colonoscopy, while useful in determining the cause of diverticulitis, 
should be deferred for four to six weeks after the resolution of an acute episode due to the increased risk of perforation during the acute inflammatory phase. Management of diverticulitis is tailored according to the severity of the condition, patient comorbidities, age, and the presence of complications. In terms of medical management, initial treatment often includes intravenous fluids and bowel rest. Antibiotic therapy is a cornerstone of treatment, targeting gram-negative bacteria and anaerobes. Common antibiotic regimens include ciprofloxacin plus metronidazole, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, TMPSMX, plus metronidazole, amoxicillin clavulinate, piperacillin tazobactam, and moxifloxacin. Surgical intervention is considered in cases unresponsive to medical therapy or when complications such as perforation, abscess formation, obstruction, fistula development, particularly colovesical, or toxic megacolon occur. Surgery is also an option in cases of multiple recurrences where the risk of further complications increases. Our next topic of discussion will be irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is often considered a diagnosis of exclusion with its causes largely idiopathic, meaning the exact origin is unknown. There's a recognized potential psychiatric component, with stress and psychological factors playing a significant role in symptom exacerbation. When it comes to signs and symptoms, IBS is characterized by chronic abdominal pain, often relieved by a bowel movement, and a notable pattern of alternating diarrhea and constipation. IBS is also associated with other psychosomatic conditions, such as fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, and migraines. This association underscores the need for a comprehensive approach to patient care, where both gastrointestinal and extraintestinal symptoms are addressed. The diagnostic process for IBS involves ruling out other potential causes, typically laboratory tests, imaging studies, and colonoscopy results are normal. The Rome criteria play a pivotal role in diagnosing IBS. This includes recurrent abdominal pain for at least one day per week in the last three months, accompanied by two or more of the following, symptoms related to defecation, a change in stool frequency, and a change in stool form. Management of IBS is primarily symptomatic, starting with lifestyle and dietary modifications. This includes avoidance of gas-producing foods, lactose, and gluten, which may trigger or exacerbate symptoms. For diarrhea, treatment options include lopramide, bile acid sequestrants like cholestyramine and cholestopol, and the 5-HT, 3-antagonist, allocetron. For constipation, management strategies include fiber supplements like psyllium, laxatives such as polyethylene glycol and magnesium citrate, and medications like lubiprostone and linoclotide. Additionally, for cramping and spasms, antispasmodics such as dicyclamine and hyoscyamine can be effective. We'll now shift our attention to differentiating ulcerative colitis from Crohn's disease. Starting with epidemiology, ulcerative colitis shows a bimodal distribution, typically affecting individuals between the ages of 15 to 40 and then again from 50 to 80. In contrast, Crohn's disease is more commonly diagnosed in the second and third decades of life. The signs and symptoms of these diseases have some overlap but also distinct characteristics. Ulcerative colitis is primarily associated with chronic bloody diarrhea, rectal pain, tenesmus, and incontinence. In Crohn's disease, patients often experience chronic watery diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Both conditions can present with elevated inflammatory markers, leukocytosis, and anemia in serological tests. 
However, UC is often ANCA positive, whereas Crohn's is ASCA positive. Colonoscopy findings are particularly distinguishing. In ulcerative colitis, there is continuous mucosal inflammation starting in the rectum and extending proximally, often with pseudopolyps. Crohn's disease, on the other hand, is characterized by skip lesions or areas of transmural inflammation interspersed with normal intestine and can involve any part of the gastrointestinal tract, most commonly the terminal ileum. Biopsy results also help in differentiation. Ulcerative colitis typically shows crypt abscesses, while Crohn's disease is characterized by transmural granulomas. Complications between the two also vary. Ulcerative colitis can lead to toxic megacolon, while Crohn's disease is more commonly associated with complications like fistulas, enteroenteric, enterovesical, enterovaginal, abscesses, and obstruction. Both diseases have extraintestinal manifestations, such as erythema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum, arthritis, uveitis, and spondylarthritis. However, ulcerative colitis uniquely associates with primary sclerosing cholangitis, while Crohn's disease can lead to nephrolithiasis, subacute combined degeneration due to B12 deficiency, and gallstones. Treatment strategies also differ. Ulcerative colitis treatment involves steroids for acute exacerbations and mesalamine or sulfasalazine for maintenance, with surgery being curative for those refractory to medical management. In Crohn's disease, treatment includes steroids for acute exacerbations, anti-TNF agents like infliximab and etanercept, and immunomodulators like azathioprine and mercaptopurine for maintenance, with surgery reserved for managing complications. Finally, the risk of colon cancer is increased in both conditions but follows different patterns. In ulcerative colitis, the risk increases after 8 to 10 years of colonic involvement, necessitating regular colonoscopies every 1 to 3 years after this duration. The presence of primary sclerosing cholangitis further increases this risk. In Crohn's disease, the increased risk of colon cancer is seen only with colonic involvement. Now let's further elaborate on one of the complications of ulcerative colitis, toxic megacolon. Toxic megacolon can be caused by various other conditions, including Clostridium difficile infection, ischemic colitis, volvulus, diverticulitis, in addition to ulcerative colitis. Each of these conditions contributes to the pathological dilation of the colon, but the mechanisms and clinical context can differ. In terms of signs and symptoms, patients with toxic megacolon often present with peritoneal signs, including severe ileus, guarding, rigidity, and rebound tenderness. These are accompanied by worsening fever, typically greater than 38 degrees Celsius, abdominal distension, hemodynamic instability, and altered mental status. The combination of these symptoms in the appropriate clinical context should raise immediate concern for toxic megacolon. The initial diagnostic test for toxic megacolon is an abdominal x-ray, which typically shows right colonic dilation greater than 6 centimeters, postural folds that do not extend across the entire lumen, and multiple air fluid levels in the colon. A CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis can provide more detailed information and help in assessing the extent of the disease and any complications, such as perforation. Supporting laboratory findings often include leukocytosis with a white blood cell count greater than 10,500 and a lactate level greater than 2.2, indicating systemic inflammation and possible tissue hypoperfusion. Management of toxic megacolon is a medical emergency, primarily due to the risk of perforation and subsequent sepsis. 
Medical management includes aggressive intravenous fluid resuscitation, nasogastric tube placement for bowel rest, and intravenous corticosteroids if the condition is related to inflammatory bowel disease. Antibiotic therapy is tailored based on the underlying cause. A combination of a third-generation cephalosporin like ceftriaxone and metronidazole for broad coverage and specific treatment for C. difficile colitis with oral vancomycin and intravenous metronidazole. In cases where patients are unresponsive to medical management or in the event of colonic perforation, surgical intervention is necessary. The typical surgical procedure is a subtotal colectomy with end ileostomy, which involves the removal of the majority of the colon and the creation of an ileostomy. The final disorder of this section we will review is colon cancer. Colon cancer has several risk factors. Age is a primary factor, with individuals over 50 at increased risk. Family history and a personal history of inflammatory bowel diseases like ulcerative colitis also elevate risk. Dietary factors, such as a high-fat and low-fiber diet, contribute to the likelihood of developing colon cancer. Genetic mutations play a crucial role, with conditions like hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, HNPCC, familial adenomatous polyposis, FAP, and Poitz-Jeggers syndrome significantly increasing the risk. Key manifestations of colon cancer include iron deficiency anemia, unexplained weight loss, changes in bowel habits like constipation, alteration in stool caliber, notably pencil-thin stools, bowel obstruction, and the presence of blood in the stool, melena or hematochesia. These symptoms warrant thorough evaluation for colon cancer, especially in high-risk individuals. Several polyposis syndromes are closely associated with colon cancer. Gardner syndrome, a variant of FAP, features thousands of polyps and an APC gene mutation, leading to colon cancer and various soft tissue tumors. Turcotte syndrome, another FAP variant, combines thousands of polyps due to APC gene mutation with CNS neoplasms like medulloblastoma and glioblastoma. Poitz-Jeggers syndrome is characterized by mucocutaneous pigmentation and hamartomatous polyps in the small intestine, increasing the risk of various cancers, including breast, stomach, and pancreas. Lastly, Lynch syndrome, or HNPCC, involves a DNA mismatch repair gene mutation, leading to colon cancer without the development of polyps, and increasing the risk for several other cancers. Diagnostic modalities for colon cancer include barium enema, which can reveal an apple core lesion, Connecticut scans of the abdomen and pelvis, and colonoscopy, which is the definitive diagnostic tool. Management strategies depend on the stage of the disease. Surgical resection is the primary treatment for localized disease, while advanced disease may require a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. Screening for colon cancer is tailored based on individual risk factors. For those without risk factors, colonoscopy screening is recommended starting at age 45. If there is a first-degree relative diagnosed before age 60, screening should begin at age 40 or 10 years before the relative's diagnosis. For familial adenomatous polyposis, screening should start as early as 10 to 12 years old, with early colectomy planned to prevent inevitable progression to cancer. Individuals with Poitz-Jeggers syndrome should start screening at age 12, and those with HNPCC should begin colonoscopies between 20 to 25 years old.